0: Welcome to the 24-Minute Bible Podcast featuring Pastor Mark Minor, where we will journey together to help you grasp how the Bible fits together to provide a coherent, understandable, and historical book. The purpose of this podcast is not to convince, but to help you understand. Not to defend, but to connect the dots of this most amazing book. Not to debate, but to discover the plan of the Bible. There is a plan. If you enjoy what you hear today, please leave us a review. It really does help us. And now here's Pastor Mark. Hello, my name is Mark Minor, and thank you for joining me today on Episode 8 of the 24-Minute Bible Podcast. Life can change quickly. We all know that. Uh, Duties and responsibilities that perhaps we always knew might be out there for us someday can suddenly become a stark in-your-face reality. So to begin, how about a little American history lesson to introduce our Episode 8 today? The year was 1945. Harry Truman had been vice president for 82 days. Franklin Delano Roosevelt had been president of the United States for over 12 years, now serving his fourth term. At about 5.15 p.m. in the afternoon, uh, Vice President Truman, after supervising or having been in the Senate, was relaxing with some political acquaintances in a side room of the Capitol building. When a page found him and delivered this message, come to the White House immediately. No more was said. At about 5.25 p.m., Harry Truman arrives at the White House where he is ushered into the Oval Office and abruptly informed that President Roosevelt was dead. At 7.09 p.m. on April 12, 1945, using a borrowed Gideon Bible, Harry Truman was sworn in as President of the United States. It would be his lot now and his responsibility now to finish the task of World War II and to make perhaps the greatest wartime decision of all human history, to use the atomic bomb on the enemy and with that act to begin the nuclear age. Joshua had served as Moses' VP, if you will. <clears throat> Moses had always been there. For 40 years, Joshua looked to Moses for direction, leadership, and decisions. Then one day, it happened. Not a congressional page, but the Lord Himself came to Joshua and spoke these words Moses, my servant, is dead. And so, with this opening statement, the book of and the leadership. Of Joshua begins. In today's podcast, we will look at the critical role Joshua played in the Bible and in God's plan for this new country, the nation of Israel. As we always try, we will connect the dots and to continue to understand how God's plan, a plan first revealed to Abraham over 700 years ago, is unfolding before our eyes in the pages of the Bible. The Lord of the Bible keeps his promises. And he had made two specific promises to Abraham. The first promise, that from, him, from his loins, from him would come a mighty nation. That promise is now fulfilled as Moses led over one million of Abraham's children, the nation Israel, out of Egypt. So that promise is, is there. It's done. But there was a second promise and that promise God spoke to Abraham and it's found in Genesis 15, 18. And it was this, and I quote the verse, he says, to your descendants, I will give this land and it's a promised land. And in fact, that's the promise that we're looking at today. <clears throat> a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that the children of Israel will possess forever. That promise The promise of a land is about to be fulfilled through Joshua. So as we dive into episode 8, Joshua and the land, we're going to look at two different aspects today. We're going to talk about the ethics of battles and wars simply because we need to, as we look at this book of Joshua, uh, there is, it is a book of war, and so we need to understand, and, and if you're a Christian today, this may help you to understand the premise, or at least to explain uh, this, this very uh, interesting but difficult book. And then secondly, we're going to talk about the land. Richard Dawkins uh, is a prominent atheist, evolutionist. He's a New York Times bestseller. He wrote a lot of different books, uh, probably the most famous, called The God Delusion. And in The God Delusion, uh, Richard Dawkins writes this concerning the very thing that we're looking at today, concerning the book of Joshua. This is what Dawkins says, and I quote, It is a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. Wow, Richard, pretty strong words. And so I'd like to respond to Mr. Dawkins uh, in a few different ways. Number one, I agree with him in some part. Uh, The book of Joshua is a bloody book. In fact, the Bible is a bloody book. It doesn't hide the sins of his saints. It deals with the reality uh, of of our humanity, and so uh, we see throughout the scripture, and certainly in this book of Joshua, the twenty four chapters recording the battles and the wars that Joshua and the children of Israel are going to fight as they move into the promised land. I, I can I can concur. It is a bloody book, but there's a second point that uh, that just rankles me. As Mr. Dawkins makes the claim that it's a, a, a Joshua's a book about bloodthirsty massacres and a xenophobic relish that the children of Israel had, that's nonsense. And I think it's also hypocrisy. For I know Mr. Dawkins, I've read his book, The God Delusion. He's an atheist and he's an evolutionist. And if you're an evolutionist, you live by the mantra. It's, it's, it's the thing that you go by, uh, the survival of the fittest. So I think it a little, hypocr- a little bit hypocritical, Mr. Dawkins, if you're going to criticize the Israelis for winning the battle because they're the strongest and the fittest. I wouldn't think you would have any problem with that being an atheist and particularly an evolutionist. So I think that's hypocritical. But there's an even deeper hypocritical wave to Mr. Dawkins' statement. Mr. Dawkins doesn't believe in any religion, but he saves his greatest animus, hatred, if you will, for Christianity and for the Bible. But I think that just incredibly hypocritical of Mr. Dawkins for though he rails against the, quote, bloodthirsty massacres that are included in his mind in the book of Joshua, uh, he participates in those bloodthirsty massacres. For, as I know Mr. Dawkins from his book, his reading, his writing, as an evolutionist, atheist, liberal, if you might want to put him in that category, he believes 1,000% wholeheartedly in the killing of millions of people. Now, he might not put it this way, but it is in fact, in essence, at the, and the sum of all things is true, because he believes in abortion. And he says that there's no problem with killing an unborn baby, not not on a battlefield or or not out uh, on a rock plain somewhere, but in the most sacred place at all, the womb of a mother. He has no problem with that. And so you want to talk about bloodthirsty massacres, Mr. Dawkins? Let's talk about the one million unborn innocent children that were killed last year just in the United States of America or the 50 plus million children that have been killed because of Roe v. Wade since 1973. Mr. Dawkins, I would call that a bloodthirsty massacre. And I would call that xenophobic relish because as I see the abortion forces, those who are, are so sold out uh, to to the the premise of abortion, uh, I don't think you get any more bloodthirsty than that. Oh, yes, I know it's done off to the side in a quiet way and not with a soldier with a sword, but a doctor with a scalpel. But the results are still the same. Somebody dies. I think that hypocritical. Mr. Dawkins, and the third thing I would say to Mr. Dawkins is simply this. We live in a broken world. No matter what your religious affiliation or non-affiliation is, uh, we can look around and say, this is this is a broken world. We are evil people, not good people with bad bad past. We are all, we, we struggle with flesh. We struggle with our selfishness. And because of that, we have conflicts. And because of that, we have very hard decisions to make and face in this life. This is not the Miss USA beauty pageant where the contestants uh, walk around in their evening gowns and smile at everybody and talk to the camera and say, I want world peace. This is real life. And I think all of us listening to the sound of my voice understand that world peace is never going to come because of our flesh. In fact, the only real, true way to peace, and ultimately world peace, is a relationship with the Prince of Peace. So as we think about that, as we think about all of this, I I would say that we live in a broken world, and these are hard decisions. In fact, let me just circle back around to Harry Truman for a minute. Good old Harry, boy from Missouri sitting there at the White House, and he's become president now, and for the first time some days afterward, he's taken into confidence, and he finds out about a project known as the Manhattan Project. And the Manhattan Project has been successful in producing an atomic bomb. Mr. Truman had no clue whatsoever that the project even existed until he became president, but now, as president... The buck stops here. And he has to make a decision, a very hard decision, a difficult decision for the United States of America, for his army, for this war, for this world, because he now has in his power life and death. <clears throat> of course, we all know the decision that Mr. Truman made. And so the bomb was loaded into the uh, bomb bay of the plane, the Enola Gay. And it takes off and it flies over Hiroshima. The doors open, the bomb falls. 90 seconds later, the bomb explodes. And at the moment of that explosion, 80,000 human beings died immediately. 60,000 more subsequently would follow uh, in death in, in the weeks ahead by an indirect result of that bomb. So 140,000 people were killed because of that one simple bomb dropped on Hiroshima. So we might ask, what were the ethics of this event of the war? Should we have? Should we not have? Was it in fact a a way to bring peace in a quicker fashion, instead of the land war that was inevitable on the Japanese shores. Well, we're not here to talk about World War II, and I'd love to, uh, <clears throat> but we are here to talk about the ethics of things because the critics will come at the book of Joshua, particularly as they look at the city in the battle of Jericho, and they will, they will rail against that, and yet I do see some discrepancies in their thinking. And so I just want to bring a little uh, light, perhaps, to the whole book of Joshua. Let's understand this. Joshua was a general. He was a military leader. That's what he was called to do. And he had a job, and his job was to secure this land that had been promised to Abraham over 700 years ago and now was coming to fruition. It wasn't pretty, and the Bible doesn't pull away from that. And there were ethical questions, and I think it's fair to ask those ethical questions, but I think we also need to be at least unbiased enough to look at both sides and understand what was going on. Let me bring up another point here that when when Mr. Truman and our forces in World War II dropped the bomb, <clears throat> there were eighty thousand people, one hundred and forty thousand total, in just that one city, not let alone Nagasaki and some of the other cities. <clears throat> Jericho, as we understand from archaeology, was a strong, mighty city. It had walls around it, and and it was everything that the Bible said. But we also understand from archaeology that the population of Jericho around the time of Joshua's attack was probably around 2,000 people. We're not talking 140,000 people dying almost instantaneously in one act or event of war. We're talking about a city of 2,000 people. And in fact, from there, other battles took place. That's what the book of Joshua is about as we uh, seek to put all these things together. There were around 13 different battles, uh, over 30 different kings that were defeated. There was a strategy that Joshua had, and it was a strategy of divide and conquer. He goes in to Jericho, wins that battle with, of course, God's help and the miracle that we read about in in, uh, Joshua then he turns south and, and uh, defeats the, the kings and the cities and, the, and the, the people there. And then he turns to the north and uh, also completes that battle. So uh, he clears the land of the people. He accomplishes his purpose. And you may say, well, he shouldn't have done that. Or you may bristle a little bit. But my friends, again, I will remind you, this is a broken world. Uh, There is, and and sadly in this world and in our life today, uh, just as there was in Hiroshima, there was collateral damage. No life is collateral. And yet, when we think about the bomb that was dropped there, of those 140,000 people, probably 20% of them were children. Well over 50% of them that died in that bomb blast were women and of course, all the elderly that would not have been fighting in the different islands for the Japanese were there as well. So when we talk about war, it's a horrible thing. And yet, as we see, uh, Joshua uh, was given a task to do, and so as just as and he accomplished his purpose, just as General Patton did, and General Dwight Eisenhower and General MacArthur and any other military leader that has gone before. So we understand the difficulty of this whole part of the process. But even before we go to the second portion, which is to talk about the land, let's, let's connect, connect a few dots. The Bible's really great at doing this. I call them mercy drops or nuggets of grace. And I've, it's happened to me many times. I've been reading along. I see something that's seemingly insignificant, but then as you grow in your knowledge of the Bible, you begin to go back and you begin to connect those dots. And, and that's what this is that I'm about to read to you out of Genesis 15. Uh, it is a, a dot, but it's also a mercy drop and a nugget of grace. For let me read this to you. This is God speaking to Abraham in Genesis uh, 15, 12. It says, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there in Egypt as we now know. Verse 14 says, But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Of course, that's what the book of Exodus is about, as we've studied in the past. And verse 16 says, but in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here from Egypt. And this is the pull quote that I want you to get. For the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached their full measure. Now, why did God put that in there? Well, let me make just at least a suggestion to you here. We're not not here to debate or convince or or defend necessarily, but I think this explains some things, particularly when we look at the book of Joshua. For God waited over 400 years for the Amorites to possibly come to him. The Amorites had the same opportunities. They saw the same stars, viewed the same life uh, situations that everybody else on the planet Earth, including Abraham, was seeing. And yet the Amorites continue to become more and more egregious. They sacrifice their children to fire gods, and their culture continued to become darker in many, many ways. God's heart was that they repent. It's always his heart that we come to him, that we recognize him. But when we walk away, as this culture did, it began to get darker and darker. But the day came, and that's what I just read here. The day came when the sins had reached their full measure. the full measure in the Hebrew literally is the word means uh, to mature and they had, it was time for harvest. They're, they had run the race and they were at the end of the game. And so God in his heart and his desire really hoped and prayed. I mean these Amorites had seen the miracles. They saw the pillar of fire by day and the pillar of cloud by night. They heard about the manna and the quail that God had provided for the children of Israel. They knew what had happened to the armies of Egypt and that the Red Sea had closed in on them. They knew about all these miracles. They had seen the miracles. And yet they were not convinced. They did not desire the God of the universe, but rather chose their gods of stone and pleasure. You see, folks, there's grace. There's grace for all of us. and That's always God's heart always before judgment, always before accountability, God has grace. There's grace for you. There's grace for me. There's grace for every culture on the face of the earth. There's grace for Richard Dawkins, who at 79 years old today still has opportunity to understand that the God he calls delusional is literally the God who gave him life and breath and who in a bloody way died on a cross for him. Let's talk about the second part of today's episode, which is the land. That's really what Joshua was doing. He was fulfilling that second promise that God had given to Abraham so many years ago. God is a God of property. To Adam and Eve, he gave property. He gave title and deed to a piece of ground called planet earth. When they sinned, they signed a quick-claim deed and handed that over to Satan. They lost their property. But God, nonetheless, acknowledges that he wants us to have property. Our God's a God of boundaries. He talks about nations and cities, and and he respects those rights, and he wants us to. He's a God of property rights as well. One of the things that has been said of America is that the beauty of America began when we allowed for private ownership of property. In fact, John Bradford, and uh, William Bradford, excuse me, uh, and the whole Pilgrim experiment, uh, that's what that was about. So our God is a God who gives us things, and one of the things he gives us is a land, a property, and that's what he wanted to do for the children of Israel. In fact, I might just add as an aside, uh, if you are a believer in Jesus and you understand there's a verse in John chapter 14 where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, a mansion, King James says. And in my father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to give you one. I'm going to give you this. Whatever that may be, I don't totally know. But I would simply say this, that our God gives us things. And one of the greatest gifts is the gift of the land. And that's exactly what he was giving to the children of Israel now. There is some confusion when we start talking about the land, Because there are many names, and some of those are are not really good to qualify or to give us an understanding or very descriptive. For example, the Holy Land. We sometimes call the Holy Land. I every now and then lead trips to the Holy Land. It's a Holy Land excursion. Well, what is the Holy Land? Well, that's where things that were holy took place. Well, great. Uh, Certainly, some holy things took place in Jerusalem. Some holy things took place around the Sea of Galilee. But, boy, there were some holy things that took place in Turkey. There were some holy things that took place in the Persian kingdom and a lot of other places. Is that the Holy Land? Well, it's just a fuzzy sort of topic, a a title for this land. There's the nation of Israel. And and indeed, God uh, did define the nation of Israel, as we'll look at here in just a second. As he gave the land to the tribes. But uh, even that sometimes uh, is a little different because the boundaries uh, fluctuated for Israel. They were the greatest when King David and King Solomon were in power and serving God. That was the greatest expansion of the boundaries. It was actually the only time that. What God told Abraham came to pass, that Abraham would possess all the land to Egypt, all the way to the Euphrates River, and north up to what we consider Lebanon today, and then to the Mediterranean Sea on the other side. So it's hard to understand that sometimes. There's also the name Palestine, which is such a misnomer. Uh, The Bible never calls the land Palestine. In fact, that was a name given to this area in 1917. After World War I, a group of British generals and other uh, powerful political leaders got together in a hotel room in Cairo, and they divided up what they knew of as this land of Israel, or the promised land, the holy land, they called it. They created the nation of Jordan. They created the nation of Iraq. They gave uh, Arabia to the family called the Saudis. So we have Saudi Arabia. And then they created this place this mandate called Palestine. Really a bad name, really not a good description of this land. Probably the best way to understand it is the promised land, because God gave the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, he called it, to some people, his people, from this tribe, this one uh, man and his children, Abraham, through his heirs. So, the book of Joshua talks about the giving of this land, the, the securing of this land. That's the battles of the first part. Then the second part of Joshua talks about the division of the land for every tribe got their own their own area, their own boundary. Now, there were 12 tribes, uh, but <clears throat> Levi, the tribe of the priesthood, did not get a piece or a, of property. They did not get an area of this land. In fact, They were commanded and blessed, their area was the temple and their domain was the law. And so they were basically the priest of the area, did not have land to take care of. But all the other tribes of Israel were given areas of land, the land of Naphtali, uh, the land of Simeon and Benjamin and Judah and, and all of the different tribes. And so the last part of that book is the division of that. Let me just close with this. It's still about the land, my friends. The nation of Israel today. Abraham fulfilled uh, Abraham's promise was fulfilled a second time in 1948. Two thousand years, Israel had not been a nation. But Isaiah 66:8 8 reminds us: can a nation be born in a day? And that's exactly what happened. For on May 13th, there was no nation Israel in 1948, but by United Nations proclamation, in one stroke of the pen, in one day, the nation of Israel, Abraham's promise or God's promise to Abraham was fulfilled again. Israel was born again, if you will. I know it's still about the land. There's peace treaties and bombings and conflicts and wars, but God gave that land to these people to Abraham and his heirs, and he said it will be theirs forever. So here we are at this end of Joshua. Uh, We can realize now that that Israel has a people. They have a government. That's what Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is all about. And now in the book of Joshua, they have a land. Joshua 24, 15 is a very familiar verse, and it, it sums up Joshua's fears in his closing statements to the children of Israel. It's every parent's fears. Because you worry, and as he did, that there were pagan nations all around, false gods, and different morals, just like you might as parents and grandparents worry about your kids' friends, who they're dating, who they're hanging out with, uh, what they're watching on Snapchat, Instagram, what music they're listening to. But this verse, very familiar. Of course, it's on a plaque of a lot of homes, uh, but it's a great verse. And this is what Joshua says in his parting shot. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your ancestors that they served beyond the Euphrates or the God of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, I trust you also have chosen to serve the Lord. Next week, we will be looking at, in episode nine, we'll be looking at the judges of Israel. Hope you can make it. Thank you for taking this journey, a simple journey to understand the Bible, here on today's episode of the 24-Minute Bible Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the 24-Minute Bible Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and look forward to continuing this journey to understanding the Bible, please subscribe to the channel. And if you would be so kind, please share it with your friends who might enjoy it as well. Join us next week with Mark Miner for another episode as we continue to explore how the Bible so beautifully fits together. May you have a blessed week, and may God be glorified in your lives.